You know, normally, uh, an encouragement of very sermon series that uh, we do comes in the form of people saying, thank you, that was really good, it blessed my heart. Uh, this sermon series, not so much. This sermon series has been more along the lines of, it's been really hard. But thank you for speaking truth. I want to share some emails. Um, one, uh, this is just one sentence. Looking forward to marrying the wrong person just four weeks from today. And if you don't know what she is talking about, um, ask your neighbor and they'll tell you why this person is so excited that they're marrying the wrong person in about a month. Here's another. I appreciate you taking time to do this sermon series. Uh, it's definitely a topic I struggle with. And particularly, she's talking about what we've been talking about recently, which is the issue of dating, relationships, sex, and as we talk about marriage and divorce today. But I'm thankful God is enabling you to speak these hard truths to the congregation. Uh, I was very challenged by it and refreshed by the fact that our church is actually talking about the issue of sex. It's great to be reminded and humbled by these truths. And then this next email really broke my heart. I have a history when it comes to sexual sins, um, such as molestation, incest, homosexual encounters, and just childhood dabbling. By the way, if you're a visitor to our church, welcome to New Community. Um, you all know what I'm talking about though, right? Like, this isn't shocking to you that folks write and share stuff like this. She goes on, she says, I can say that when it comes to sex, I don't have a clue. I don't. All I know is that I want to remain abstinent until marriage. I know that a lot of this has to do with pleasing God, but I also feel that my past, Pastor Peter, is playing into it. Seeing my mom and my dad together has totally screwed up my thinking about sex. How many of you guys could say that today about you? Like The example that you were set one way or another by your parents has negative impacted you. Both my parents uh, never married each other, and my dad is very much a rolling stone. Just to give you insight, he has eight kids by seven moms. Two sets of siblings are the same age, and they're not twins. My dad has always had women, and he would even take me along to their, sec to their houses at times, and I'd play with their kids while he had sex or spent time with their moms. And yes, he was still with my mother. He continues to be with my mother today, even though he's married to my other youngest sister's mother. And I have tremendous issues with him in this whole setup. I'm in counseling now. She goes on. She says, I've only had one sexual intercourse with a guy, and that was when I was 15. I've done other things. I'll spare you the details. Since my last couple of dating experiences, I was one of those girls who I'm ashamed to admit was willing to have sex with somebody. I'm currently trying to hold off until marriage, but it's been extremely hard. I've prayed about it. I've given my sexual feelings to God and so forth. And then she says this, I'm at least trying to wait until I'm in love. I know what you mean. And it's not what God designed sex for. I know that this is something that I wouldn't have done about a year ago, but I find myself somewhat becoming more open to the idea of sex. I hate that I feel this way, but I have to say that it's been one of the largest struggles that I've ever had. I feel like if I do decide to have sexual intercourse with this guy that I'm dating now, then I'll condemn myself and not be pleasing to God. I'll also be a hypocrite and totally judge myself because I judge other people who have sex. 
The guy I'm currently dating is a Christian. And then she said the following, and it just again broke my heart. She said, Today I'm, the guy I'm currently dating is a Christian, but in this day and age, it doesn't matter. I've dated preachers, worship leaders, just plain old good church folk. And they all want to have sex. But this guy, it's different because he doesn't pressure me to have sex. He respects my decision and the fact that I want to wait. Yeah, so that's where I'm at with this whole thing. <sighs> and then she added this lighthearted moment, which I loved. You totally changed my world when you mentioned the wanting the perfect marriage, perfect family, perfect soulmate stuff. You know, that's my whole thinking. Waiting for a perfect man to come along who will be my soulmate so that we can have the perfect marriage, perfect children, perfect life. I mean, I've dreamt of being a soccer mom since I was like in elementary school. <laughs> Seriously. Since like elementary school. Well, she, she says that. She repeats herself. <laughs> I mean, I even watch movies and TV shows over and over again to remind me of what I want. And then she says, God, I need help. Yeah, you do. But we love you though. Last email. It's from a wife. Thank you for acknowledging the topics that are taboo and are at the core of our relationships. It's meaningful to see and hear other people admitting that lust and pornography are impacting their lives. It's not easy to admit. It's easier to sweep it under the rug. For us, there came a point where we had to talk about it. It's been about a year of healing so far, and it will be an area we address for our entire marriage. I hope other couples are able to be honest and open. Coming from wife's side of the issues, I can say that acknowledging the elephant in the room has eliminated what was preventing us from being closer. I love him even more for sharing how he is feeling. The heart of the real issues are so deep, so much deeper than I or most people realize. There's freedom in opening up and being vulnerable. I think many women are not aware of the reality that their husbands look at pornography. It's not addressed in our culture, and this may be an area you need to talk about in your relationship. I knew it was common, but it was not prepared for how it would affect our marriage. From one wisdom through every emotion firsthand, there's no advice to tell you how to handle intimacy after opening up a can of worms that pornography lust issues can cause. The spouse is also deeply affected and has a lot to work through. Thank you for your messages and I'll pray that relationships will be healed. Um, I was blown away last week by how many of you guys stood up and asked for prayer that struggled with issues of sexual sins in the past and currently. Um, today is going to be just as tough because today as we go through the Sermon on the Mount because we're, we're talking about marriage and divorce and then next week we talk about singleness and dating. Okay? Because we need to talk about all four. Um, marriage. Marriage. Sermon on the Mount talks about how God has come in Christ and has ushered in the kingdom, his rule and reign, to restore and renew everything. And God creates the church, you and I, he calls us to a radically different life that will give a testimony and a demonstration of what happens, the profound changes that occur when God's rule and reign invade our lives. We are called to be different. We are called to be different. We are called to be unique. We are called to be unfashionable. By the way, if you're wondering, where do you get that? Where'd you get that title from? Romans 12. 
in one of the older translations, it says, do not conform this, do not be fashioned by the ways of this world. And the Bible says, if you're a Christian, you are somebody who is fashioned by the cultural values of this world. You live differently. You live uniquely. You live distinctly. And that points to the fact that God has invaded your heart and my heart. So today we talk about, talk about the topic of marriage and divorce. And um, there's never been a society found. There's never been a culture found, no matter how remote, that didn't have marriage. Why? Listen to how the Bible talks about the creation account. Genesis 2.24, it says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the word cleave, we've been talking about this for a couple Sundays, literally means to make a covenant. It means to make a public vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment. Marriage. Listen very carefully. God says that he invented marriage on the day that he created us. God says that he created and invented marriage on the day that he created and invented us. In other words, marriage is not a social institution jumped up by some Iron Age caveman to make society work. Marriage is God's idea. He invented it. He designed it. Are you with me so far? Okay, so that means, real quickly, three things. Okay? That means because God invented marriage on the day that he created us, there's a power to it. Married couples, can you testify? There is a powerful dynamic on how your marriage can affect you positively or negatively like nothing else can. There's an incredible power. We'll talk about this later. Incredible power to a marriage. A healthy marriage and what it can do and a dysfunctional, unhealthy marriage, and what it can do, it hits us emotionally, psychologically, mentally, and spiritually, marriage does, like very few things can. Secondly, because God invented marriage, there's an indelibility to it. What do I mean? You can't get rid of it. People have tried to get rid of marriage. Good luck. You can't get rid of marriage. Trying to get rid of marriage is kind of like trying to take out your appendix by yourself. Like, hold still while I... You can't get rid of marriage. It's permanent. Why? You didn't create it. I didn't invent it. God did. Here's the third. Because God created marriage and they created us, you can't tinker with it. You can't tinker with it. If marriage is like other social institutions, education, politics, etc., you could tinker with it. You could say, I'm going to do what I want with it to make it form. But God created marriage. God invented marriage, which means you and I don't have the right nor the ability to tinker with it. You want to use marriage properly? You got to submit to the design of the designer. Are you following? You can't tinker with marriage and go, well, we don't like that part. We don't like that part. So we're going to, that's like saying, I'm going to pick up a gun. I don't want to submit to the design of the, the, this gun. I'm going to use it the way I want to. So instead of aiming it that way, I'm going to aim it this way. You want to use something as dangerous as a gun properly, you submit to the design of the designer. And the one who designed the marriage isn't you, isn't me, it's in society, culture, it's God. Having said that, I'm going to say something for the next two minutes that's going to confuse and offend everybody. Number one, 
Number one, because God invented marriage, I believe that marriage is for a man and a woman for life. Can I say that again? Because God invented marriage. I believe that it is for a man and a woman. And by the way, those of you Christians going, hey man, hear the second part. It's for life. Christians in this country have lost, have lost the credibility to talk about gay marriage because we don't take the second part seriously. For life. For life, God says. It's permanent. Saying that doesn't make me a bigot. Saying that doesn't make me an intolerant person. Saying that doesn't make me a hater. Despite what our culture says, I believe that a Christian could disagree with somebody about marriage and still love that person. I believe that Christians in this country not only should, but have the absolute responsibility to lay down our lives for somebody who disagrees with us about marriage and never be self-righteous. Having said all that, I also believe that there should be a just society that treats everyone equally, regardless of race, class, gender, or sexual orientation. I believe that a society ought to not discriminate, ought to not class, uh, treat people as second-class citizens because of their race, class, gender, or sexual orientation. I believe that we, as Christians, have the responsibility to work for a most just, fair society for everybody. For everybody. That's what I believe about marriage. If you're sitting there going, so is he for? Is he? That's exactly what I wanted to do. Church, whether you agree or disagree, about someone's perspective of marriage. Don't you dare be self-righteous and arrogant and think that you've got truth cornered and everybody who disagrees with you is a schmuck. Love and lay down your life for people who disagree with you. Marriage. Started by God, invented by God. It has a divine origin to it. And because of that, there's a power to it. It's permanent. And we can't tinker with it the way we want to. We have to submit to the design of the creator. That's why marriage and old prayer books, marriage vows goes like this. Some of you guys will say this in about a few months when you get marriage. Marriage is instituted by God, regulated by his commandments. What God institutes, he regulates. Not us, not culture, not society. I can't tell you. While I was sitting down with somebody who's doing, I'm doing marital counseling, and a husband will say to me, and I'll go, you need to forgive your wife. And he'll go, don't tell me how to run my marriage. I go, you have no idea. You have no idea if you say that, what you're talking about. Because it's not your marriage. It's not yours. Someone else designed it. Someone else created it. Submit to the design of the creator. You want to use it properly? You want to flourish in it? Submit to its creator. 
Matthew 5.31. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I'll tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is an abbreviated summary of Matthew 19. Matthew 19. And so that's where we're going to go. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, Jesus not only talks about divorce, but he talks about the more important context of marriage. Okay? So what we're going to look at today is talk about what marriage is and what God has to say about it, and then how divorce, in the context of what God has to say about marriage, fits in. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Context. There are two competing schools of thought during Jesus' time. Two rabbis who interpreted Deuteronomy 24, where it talks about divorce in a different ways. There was a guy named Rabbi Hillel and a Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai was a rabbi who was teaching a more rigorous interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 about divorce. So he was basically going, there are very few, if any, conditions in which you become the divorced person. And then there was a rabbi, Hillel, who had a very lax view of divorce. And so this is what he was teaching his students about how to interpret it, Deuteronomy 24. And the interpretive word, key words were, some indecency. You can divorce your wife or your husband, some indecency. So Rabbi Hillel comes along and goes, here's what some indecency means. Um, is your wife a bad cook? She burned your dinner? Well, that qualifies for some indecency. So you have the right to give her a certificate of divorce. Um, you don't like the way your wife's looking and like the way she looks anymore? Are you more attracted to a more, more, more attractive woman? Well, that would fall in the category of some indecency. You can get divorced. This is what was going on. This is the culture. Rabbis are teaching a very rigorous interpretation of New Year 24 and a very lax. And can you guess what the Pharisees were leaning towards? The more lax Rabbi Hillel's perspective of what divorce is. And you could say, you could tell by their language. Can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, on the surface, all they're saying is, Jesus, on the contemporary debate, who do you fault? Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Shammai. But on a deeper level, the Pharisees are basically preoccupied with, what are the grounds for divorce? What are the ways I could justify my way out of this marriage and get a divorce? And Jesus goes, I'm going to have none of that. You're preoccupied with grounds for divorce. I'm preoccupied with the permanence of marriage. And then listen to what he says. First of all, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus' reply is not a reply. He answers their question with a question. But in that question, and that powerful carking back to Genesis 2, Jesus talks about what the essence of marriage is, what the purpose of marriage is, and what the priority of marriage is. Let me say it again. The essence of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the priority of marriage. And Jesus says, unless you understand the essence of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the priority of marriage, you have no clue about divorce. Essence of marriage. The essence of marriage. What is the essence of marriage? By the way, let me get this book. Um, I've, 
Almost all the stuff that I'm going to talk about today comes right out of this book. And I'm going to encourage actually singles, married everybody. The meaning of marriage. The meaning of marriage. Probably the best book that I've read on marriage. So anybody who is wanting to get married, anybody who wants, frankly, to be in healthy relationships, get the book. The essence of marriage. What is the essence of marriage? When you talk about the essence of something, for example, if I say, what's a physician? My wife is a physician. What's a physician? And someone goes, well, physician is someone who wears a white coat. No, barbers wear white coats. Butchers wear white coats. The essence of marriage. We're talking about the essence of marriage. We're not talking about, we're talking about what makes marriage a marriage. What makes a marriage a marriage? And here's where our culture goes horribly wrong. Because the answer to that question, what makes a marriage marriage? Our culture says it's love, it's affection. And I'll tell you, your dogs have tremendous love and affection for you. <laughs> and they will even die for you. Can I get a name? Yes. But you're not married to them. It's sexual chemistry. Good Lord. I, like, I want to like vomit. Every time, I want to vomit. I'm serious. I want to vomit when people in our culture go, oh, we're just sexual chemistry. So I'm like, sexual? What, what is that? Like you're talking about like hormones? Like your bodily like, is that what you're talking about? Like that's the essence of marriage? Is that there's just sexual chemistry and sexual attraction? Third, our culture would say, some conservative traditional support, the essence of marriage is having kids. It's procreation. To which I've said to one couple, I'm like, rabbits and rats are wonderful at procreating. But they're not. You get the point. <laughs> the essence of marriage is not procreation. It's not sexual chemistry. It's not feeling and affection. The essence of marriage, Jesus says, is cleaving. Verse 5. Essence of the cleave. The essence of marriage, I'm put it up there. It's a covenant that is you're making a public promise to permanently, exclusively, and legally commit to sharing your entire life with someone. That is the essence of marriage. Essence of marriage is two people going, we are entering into a covenant. That is, we're making a public promise to commit ourselves in every way for life. Ezekiel 16. God says, I married you when you were of age. I covered you with my robe. He's talking about Israel. I made my vows to you and I pledged my faithfulness to you. God says marriage is a covenant. A permanent Legal, in every way, committing your life to someone. Practical application. There's lots of practical application. We'll start running into sort of what we're going to talk about next week too. It's amazing how often when I marry people, do a wedding, a couple will go, Pastor Peter, can we write our own vows? And I go, no. (laughs) And they'll go, well, why not? And I'll go, go ahead, write it. And almost always, this is what I get. I love you. I want to be with you. You're the most important thing in my life. You complete me. Blah, 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 blah. I would sit there and go, that shows you and me. You have no clue what a marriage is. Because a marriage and a vow says nothing about your present. It says nothing about how you're feeling right now. A covenant 
is a promise. And a promise has everything to do with the future. Everything to do with the future. You know what you're doing? And I say this actually with the couples that officiate. Some of y'all are like, we're never asking him to marry us. (laughs) I say to the guy and to the girl, you are right now making a public promise for the future. You're not just saying to that person, I love you now. You are promising future love. You are saying right in front of everybody, I will still be faithful. I will still be loving. I will still be serving. I will still be tender. I will still cherish you 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 43 years from now. If I'm still alive, I am still going to love you, still cherish you, still be tender towards you. Still, serve. That's what a covenant is. You're saying nothing about present love. Of course you love the person right now. But a covenant is 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years from now, you're making an appointment for yourself. That's what a marriage is. So the, I love you, I'm telling you, no, no, no. I love you, Jenny. You, know? you guys, I am intentionally, listen, I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating, I'm intentionally just because you and I have been so brainwashed into this romantic love notion of marriage that unless you hear something totally like, what is he talking about? You may never be balanced. Does that make sense? So I am, yes, intentionally stripping this thing off. But don't we need to have affection? Yes. Don't we need to love? Yes. Isn't there some chemistry? Yes. But at the end of the day, it's not for now. It's forever. See, if marriage is about love and affection, it's a moment-by-moment thing. So the moment that you no longer feel loving, what do you do? We're going to file for divorce. Why? Irreconcilable differences. What the? What does that even mean? But a covenant has nothing to do with moment-by-moment. It's permanent. And it's all about the future. Secondly, marriage. The purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage. When I say purpose of marriage, I'm now asking you guys, what is marriage for? And we see the answer in verse 5 again, where Jesus says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. For this reason we have marriage. Now, that for this reason is a critical pivot. Because if you want to understand what the purpose of marriage is, you go backwards and go, well, what, what, what comes before the for? And what happens before the for is God saying male and female, he created them. And what Jesus is referring to, this wonderful and strange and beautiful passage in Genesis 2, where Adam is created and we see the first malediction. Now, here's what a malediction is. Malediction is the opposite of benediction. Benediction is a good word. Pastor comes up at the end and goes, here's the benediction. I give you a good word. Malediction is a bad word. And the f- throughout the Genesis account, God creates and he goes, oh, that's good. He creates and he goes, oh, that's good. He creates and he goes, oh, that's good. The first time God goes, that's not good, is when Adam is alone. The first malediction is when Adam is alone. And so God says, I'm going to create somebody to be his companion, to be his halup, to be his best friend. You know what a marriage is for? Deep friendship. Deep companionship. 
creates marriage for deepest of companionship. Your spouse was meant to be your best friend. Now, this has all kinds of ramifications, doesn't it, to what we look for in a spouse? Yes? Yeah. Because our culture is prone to ask what? I want to find out if they're good in bed. I want to find out if they're, so we're going to kind of live together, we're going to check this out. I want to find out if they're sexual. And I want to go, (laughs) you want to find out they're good in bed? You have no idea of what sex is for. Sex, we talked about this last two weeks, is what? Is a result of good communication. Show me a couple who are not talking to each other, who are hiding things from each other, who have barriers, who are emotionally distant. And I, I guarantee you, it'll show up in bed. It'll show up in their physical intimacy. If you can't get emotionally naked and vulnerable with somebody, you will never, ever be physically and totally vulnerable and naked with them. You can't. Physical vulnerability, physical giving of yourself comes out of the context of emotional vulnerability. When you can say to yourself, I have given myself to you totally in every way, emotionally in every way. I've made myself vulnerable to you. In that context, when you're physically vulnerable, sex, the way God designed it. But show me a marriage where there's communication differences, arguing, fighting, dissonance, over here, over here. And I don't show up in bed. God says, I created marriage so that your, your spouse can be your best friend, your companion. To meet that longing and the need that comes out of loneliness. To be married to your spouse means that you're absolutely vulnerable to them, a person. They see all, your spouse needs to be able to see all facets of you. Yes, even the dark, ugly stuff. And then they accept you and love you unconditionally anyway. And then when you reciprocate that, <laughs> intimacy, intimacy. So here's the question you need to ask. Singles, even married couples. Does this person have the potential to be my number one counselor or be my number one best friend? Does this person have the potential? Do you want a healthy marriage? Do you want a healthy marriage? Do you want to be in a relationship that's fulfilling, that's satisfying? A relationship that meets the long, deep longing that you have? Then do you want to be with somebody permanently who could be your best friend? Having said that, give me like three minutes to make it really uncomfortable. Do you know why pastors and Christians in the church say, marry somebody, marry somebody. And I'll, listen carefully. I don't say to people, marry a Christian. Because frankly, you're the email. You could be a Christian and not follow Jesus as Lord. So I ask, is him or her, are they following Jesus as Lord? And listen, when we do that, it's not being, oh, there they go again, church, legalistic, self-righteous judgment. No, it has nothing to do with that. Let me just ask you plainly. Do you want your spouse to be your best friend? Do you want to be with somebody who understands you to your depth? Do you want to be with somebody who you can go, oh, I, I can just be me and you get me. You understand me. You understand me to the depths. Do you want to be with somebody who understands why you get up in the morning? Do you want to, do you want to be with somebody who says, I understand the fundamental motivations, what makes you tick? Do you want to be with somebody who says, I understand from A to Z and I embrace you and love you? Do you want to be with someone like that? Do you want to be with someone who is your best friend? Well, Peter, you just narrowed down the list of candidates. No, I just deepened your understanding of what marriage is. I just forced you not to be superficial. You just want to love her? You just want to be with somebody, get sex, and play around? Or do you want a best friend who will nurture your soul?
You want to be with someone who will nurture your soul to your depth. Who will say, this relationship makes me want to be more like Jesus. This relationship makes me want to be more like Christ. Practical application. Married couples, real quick. Over time, in my counseling sessions, this is almost inevitable, over time, it's hard to open yourself up again and again. It's hard work. And a lot of times what happens in marriages is because of partly by neglect, partly by busyness, partly by, frankly, some of us are in marriages where you've opened yourself up vulnerable and that person was just like, what? And you're like, never again. And you're afraid to go there. You're afraid to confront your sins. You're afraid to be vulnerable. You're afraid to be emotionally naked. You're afraid to be real. And what happens is, in a relationship marriage, people start keeping secrets. Show me a marriage or relationship with secrets, and I'll show you a marriage or relationship that's in trouble. Married couples, we have to do the hard work of daily, regularly saying, I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to hide who I am. Here's me. Here are things I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm wrestling with. And constantly we're going there. Singles. I just, again, I'll talk more about this next week, so I'm just going to wrap this up. Singles. If the purpose of marriage, listen, if the purpose of marriage is friendship and the essence of marriage is covenant, and out of friendship and covenant grows sexuality and romance, friendship, covenant, and out of that grows good, healthy sex and intimacy and romance, then how do you and I justify how we go about dating? Because here's how we go about dating. I walk into a room. We'll kind of survey the scene. We'll pick out four or five of the most attractive people. Do you know them? No. Well, why? You? Because there's a, the way we do it, instead of going friendship and covenant first, and out of that grows romance and sex, we go romance and sex first. And out of that, maybe friendship. And out of that, maybe covenant. Is there any wonder that there's so much dysfunction in the body of Christ when it comes to dating? Is there any wonder that we have sisters in Christ, single sisters in Christ, sitting right near you who feel deeply hurt because they see Christian men when it comes to relationships and dating not go the biblical route of friendship and covenant and out of that, sex and romance. Or rather, they go, sex and romance, just like the world, and go, maybe friendship, maybe covenant. Men, I just searched this men, are we any different? Are we any different? Are we any different? Does this make sense? Friendship, that means that many of us have bypassed unbelievable amount of phenomenal spouse material because they were too tall, 
too short, too thin, too fat, too educated, too non-educated, too this, too that. And you know what the book of Proverbs calls us? A fool. But Peter, you married a beautiful, intelligent woman. That's because I was a pagan then. I was a total heathen. So don't do like me. I'm only half joking. I'm serious. I'm serious. Michael, you believe me, right? I'm serious. I'm a smart pagan. Thank you. Because you know, you know what? You did the same thing, bro. All right, I know. You should have known better than speak up, Michael Washington. <laughs> no, guys, it, look, look. It, in all seriousness, I, before I move on, next Sunday when we talk about radical biblical view of singleness and dating, listen, I, I'm going to, I'm actually going to have some time for us to talk to each other. Because I need, listen, I need the single men in our church to hear from our single sisters. And I need our single sisters to hear from a single man. That's the kind of church we are. I need us to be honest. Okay? So let's, let's be real. Seriously. We're not going we're, we're to brush this under the rug. We're not. We're not going to sweep this under the rug. Like, we need to be real about this. Because to me, it's heartbreaking and sad and frustrating that honestly we act no different I mean seriously say all you want about justice and the poor and all, which are phenomenal but why is it that when it comes to this we just go don't follow the ways of the world why is that priority of marriage priority of marriage Third, he says, a man will leave his father, verse 5 again, and mother, and cleave to his wife. And God's literally saying more than any other relationship, marriage has to have priority. It's got to be the most important relationship because it's the most powerful one. Think about this, guys. In the garden, the archetype relationship in the garden, God doesn't put a parent and a child and go, this is the primary relationship. God doesn't put two people of the same gender and go, friendship, this is. God puts a man and a woman, marriage. And he says, that right there. It's the primary, primal relationship. Okay? That's why it's so powerful. Now, if you go, what do you mean by powerful? I'll just share it with you from my experience. My self-image has been formed over the years by the accumulated verdicts of other people. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm not really formed by encouraging and successes. I'm really more formed by failures and criticisms. What I mean. They strike me much power, more powerfully. You know what Jenny has the power to do? She actually has the power to challenge all the accumulated authorities. Which means that if my marriage is strong, everything else in my life can be weak. I'll move out to the world in strength. But if my marriage is weak, it doesn't matter how good ministry, everything else flourishing, I'll move out to the world in weakness. Let me put it another way. Ladies, the whole world could go, you're not very attractive. But if your spouse goes, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. You'd move out into the world. 
Say, I'm the most beautiful one in the world. Marriage has that power. Do you know why? You didn't invent it. God invented it. This is the reason why when I see married couples who in public cut each other down, because I'm going, if y'all like that like in public, what do y'all like when you're alone? Do you know what I'm talking about? The words that we speak, like truth bombs. Think about it. And your spouse is moving out into the world by the accumulated verdict of what's happening at home. Priority marriage. So, practical application, real quick, because I got to talk about divorce. Is your marriage a priority? Married couples, over your career? Mike Thomas, remember what we promised yesterday, right? Church planting is going to be hard, but you're going to prioritize camp, yes? Men? Well, I'm doing it for my family. do that. Ask your wife if she feels like she's a priority. Ladies, do you prioritize your husband over your children? Ladies, I don't know if this applies to other, but Asians, 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 do you prioritize your wife over your marriage? Your days of being a mama's boy was supposed to end when you got married. You know what I'm saying? I do. I can't tell you that. I'm one of Asian couples. I, I counsel, and the main strife is the wife going, Pastor Peter, my husband, prioritizes his relationship with his parents and more over us. How about working with your friends? Singles. Real quick questions. Are your gifts and calling moving in the same direction? If you're talking about priority of marriage, you got to ask this question, the person you want, dating, we're all called to follow Christ, we're all called different jobs, different locations, different ways to serve the larger kingdom mission, but can your callings and giftings be coordinated? Some of you love the city, the city is where you want to be, you love concrete, you love no trees, you love the crowd, you love that, and then some of you are like, I hate the city! If one of you loves the city, the other hates the city, you might want to go, maybe, how about here's another one? What are your levels of financial expectation? Some of you very strongly about living a life of simplicity. Others of you, shopping is a sport. (laughs) Some of you call lots of education. Others of you don't. Is there coordination? Third question, what levels of church involvement do you desire? Some of you feel strongly sense of ministry within the church. Others of you call it outside the church. Some of you feel called to new community and you're with somebody who feels called to another church. You need to convert that person and bring them over to the new community. Okay. <laughs> Number four. By the way. No, I'm not going to no, go there. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to control your tongue. Control your tongue. Number four. What about roles within marriage? What happens when the first kid comes along? Who stays home? For how long? How many children do you guys want to have? Do you know that I've been in premarital counseling sessions two months before they're supposed to get married? And the woman goes, I want five kids. And I go to the guy, you? None. They didn't talk. 
but we're so in love. Grow up. I got to talk about divorce. Verse 6. We're not going to talk about this long. Verse 6. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command Pay attention to that word. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? What the Pharisees are doing right here, you guys, is a total misrepresentation of the Mosaic provision found in Deuteronomy 24. What the Pharisees are doing is, they're saying, well, Moses commanded, blah, blah, blah. And they're focusing in on this supposed Moses commanding them giving a certificate of divorce. In other words, the emphasis on the, well, this is a word of God. Moses commanded it. And what Moses actually did say was this. He said, if it's, the last resort, and there needs to be a divorce, he says, then here's, the, here's how you do it. You give them a certificate of divorce. So, so it was, it's kind of Moses saying, in that case, then yes, they do it. But the Pharisees are totally almost misrepresenting and hijacking what Moses is saying, going, but well, wasn't this emphasis on the divorce? But Jesus goes, no, no. Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. You know what Jesus is saying there? This is scary to me. This is scary to me. He says, if you divorce somebody, in the eyes of the law, you may be divorced, but in the eyes of God, you're still married. But the certificate right here, where the God says, no, that's human institution view of marriage. God says, I created it. And God says, you're still one. Now, I promise that I'll spend one full sermon talking about divorce sometime this fall because it's that important. There's only two verses here, so I'm just going to cover these two verses. There is what's called the exception clause. And listen, let me just say this very, when I see the New Testament, and I'm not the brightest bulb in the room, and I don't confess to know everything, so I'm just going to say this. There are bright men and women who've written that there's no such exception clauses anywhere. In other words, there are no grounds for divorce. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe that what the New Testament says is that there are two grounds under which you can get divorced. One is what Jesus says here, sexual uh, adultery, adultery. And the others we'll talk about in 1 Corinthians 7, desertion. Now, having said that, what does Jesus say? And what is his teaching about divorce? Two points, and then we're done. Divorce is amputation. If you have one of those old versions of the Bible, it says, therefore, God has joined together. Let no one, what? Put asunder. Put asunder. We live in a culture in which people say that divorce is normal, natural, and it should be as easy as possible. But if Jesus says, if you understand divorce, if you understand this deep unity, deep oneness that God creates, divorce isn't like taking off your clothes. Divorce is like taking off your arm. Divorce is like cutting off your leg. That's what divorce is. It's amputation. Divorce can happen. Divorce does happen. Divorce can be survived. There are couples in our church 
who have background divorce. But Jesus says divorce is as radical as removing your leg or your arm. So you do not enter into it lightly. You do it as the absolute last resort. And you do it realizing that it could potentially be life-threatening. Second point, if divorce is amputation, sometimes it's necessary for life. This is why I believe in the exception clause, you guys, because I'm following the logic and the rationale found here in the text of Matthew. If it's true that amputation, a divorce is amputation, the fact is sometimes a doctor does prescribe it. But listen one more time. It is the last thing you do. It's the most drastic thing you do. And it is the most absolutely life-threatening last resort thing that you do. Because it's not like taking off your clothes. It's like taking off your arms and your legs. Thankfully, I've had two times in the last 10 years of our church where somebody, a couple has come and said, hey, Pastor Peter, I'm thinking about getting a divorce. I want to tell you what I do as a pastor. I don't talk to anybody about divorce. I don't. What is the Bible? I go, don't want to talk about it. I do this. I go, here's what I need you to do. We'll meet. I need you to show me that you understand what the Bible has to say about God's view on marriage. And secondly, I need you to show me that you take seriously God's call to reconciliation. If you do those two things, and I'll talk to you about divorce. Otherwise, I'm not going to talk to you about divorce. Here's what's happened over the years. So a couple goes, and it's amazing. They'll come to me and go, I had no idea what God had to say about marriage. I'm like, I had loose superficial. When, when I really found out what God, and secondly, some couples will say, I never took seriously Jesus' call to reconciliation found in Matthew. So there have been times, and thank the Lord, where God has supernaturally healed marriages that were headed for divorce. And I praise God for those times. And even if the conversation needs to be had about divorce, I tell them, I go, when you can sufficiently show me you understand God's view of marriage, and secondly, you've sufficiently pursued reconciliation, yes, then we can talk about divorce. And the exception clause, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus lists one of the grounds to divorce, and that's when your spouse has been unfaithful to you. You can be divorced and free to remarry. And there's another place in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, which I'll preach about. I promise in the fall, give an entire Sunday to this, where Paul gives other biblical grounds for divorce, and that's what he calls desertion. Now, check this out. In the Old Testament, if a spouse committed adultery or left their spouse and deserted him or her, they were stoned. You know, some things from the Old Testament, I need to bring back. You know what I mean? <laughs> Anybody? Amen? Okay. Anyway. But here's what, in the New Testament, so here's my interpretation of this. In the New Testament, and I offer this humbly to you. In the New Testament, what Jesus, I think, is saying is, in the Old Testament, that was true. You stoned them to death. In the New Testament, although that's no longer in fact, Jesus is saying, when someone commits adultery or deserts you, 
There is in some ways in a, where they've died. That spouse has perished. And you're free to remarry. That's why I think it's called the exception clause. That's not the point of Jesus. Focus of Jesus is, it was not this way in the beginning. Let me end today by giving very, um, hopefully challenging and yet encouraging. Um, thanks, Cece. Cece, we're almost done. Um, you guys, you know, um, I, uh, these last three sermons, um, and I said to somebody, these last three sermons, um, I would have much preferred, I would have much preferred talking to you when I want over a cup of coffee. This is not the kind of sermon that I want to stand behind a pulpit and go, therefore, that's, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. This is very sensitive. It's very hard for some of us to hear. Um, but here's, here's what I want, to, I want to say to you. Three, three groups of people. Number one, it grieves me that somehow in certain sections of Christianity, like we treat divorcees as if like, like second-class citizens. That grieves me. Do you, there are churches that will not hire divorced pastors because it's like the unforgivable sin. And I just want to go, there are churches that will not put divorced people in leadership because they're divorced. And I just want to go, what? I actually want to point them to Jeremiah 3.6 where God says, I divorced Israel. Did you know that was in the Bible? God says, I divorced Israel. So I want to say to them, you don't want to deal with divorcees? Well, you, you might have the unenviable position of having to deal with God who calls himself, I divorce Israel. This one. Then I also want to talk to some of us, and mainly you, who, as you sat here listening, you're like, Peter, I divorce on unbiblical grounds. Like, I'm the guilty party, Peter. I walked away from that marriage. I walked away from that marriage. And you might be somebody that's been, and, and this might go to like three people in this room today out of hundreds, but I'm okay with that because I need those three to hear gospel. You might be sitting there just overwhelmed with guilt and self-condemnation going, God will never forgive me for this. God will never forgive me for this. Or God's plan for me has been basically, you know, i ruined and maybe you're sitting here as a divorced person and you're going Peter I, 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 don't, I, don't, even, I don't even know if God can use me I want to say to you that there's no sin that's beyond God's grace and redemption amen if you're sitting here this morning and you're a sinfully divorced person, that is, you divorced on unbiblical grounds and you're going, can I be forgiven? Can I even remarry? Well, I have a very simple question to that. Can liars who have repented be remarried? Can perjurers who have repented be remarried? Can idolaters who repented be remarried? Can murderers who have repented and received Christ be remarried? And the answer is yes. So if you're sitting here as a divorcee and you're going, is there hope for me? Is there a future for me? One of my favorite characters in the Bible is King David. And King David, do you remember? Talk about starting a marriage like messed up. Falls for Bathsheba. Has her husband murdered. And then he marries her. Talk about starting a marriage like on the wrong foot. But when David 
repented. And you read his repentance in Psalm 51. Out of that marriage came who? Solomon. And out of Solomon's descendants came who? Jesus. God takes a marriage that's as jacked up as David's and Bathsheba's and God says, out of that marriage, out of that line, out of that descendants will come the one who will bring salvation to the world. How much more clear can God go, give me the most messed up people and let me see what I can do. How can God any more clear go, give me the most broken up, messed up marriages and let me show you what I can do. No one ever perished at the feet of the cross and at Jesus. No one. So my last challenge this morning, and I'm not going to do this, have you stand today, but my challenge this morning was this. I want us to collectively as a church pray for married couples who sat here this morning either together and just in pain or married people who are here and their spouses are not here because they're unbelievers or they don't care or their marriage is in trouble. I wanted to pray as a church family for married people, for marriages. Singles will get to you all of next week for today. So bow your heads with me, church. See, part of what makes this real is I know for a fact that there are marriages that are struggling. And I know for a fact that there are couples who maybe even walked in here pondering divorce. Or when in quiet moments you've wondered if there's any hope to save that relationship and to save that marriage. So what I'd like to do for the next just minute or so, church, is for us to collectively and corporately just lift up lift up the men and women who are married and you know if you know somebody specifically because you're in your small group or you serve with them and they've shared things with you this would be the perfect appropriate time to pray for that couple again God we as a church family come around that couple or those couples in our church, God, who are maybe on the brink of divorce or just losing hope. Help them not just to hear, but to feel our prayers, God, as we come around them. And we pray prayers of hope, prayers of encouragement, prayers of strength. And we pray that the God who is able to conquer, defeat death, evil, and sin, and bring life out of death, that you would resurrect that marriage, God that you would breathe life into that marriage, God. That you would restore and heal that marriage, God.
that your kingdom rule and reign that is healing, restoring the cosmos, that you would enter into that marriage, God, and do a supernatural work, God, of healing, restoring, and renewing that marriage, God, that out of death would come resurrection, out of hopelessness, God, would come the hope of the gospel. Jesus, we lift that couple to you. And God, I just want to remember, and we remember married folks who are here by themselves or maybe here physically, but physically with someone but alone, who feel alone in that marriage and feel hopeless, feel jaded, perhaps even given up. That you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would speak to him or her today. as we continue our journey next week. May the God who says to us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have clothed you. I have covered you. I've entered into a covenant with you and have vowed my absolute commitment and faithfulness to you. May that God, may the love of that God, may the mercy of that God, may the grace of that God shower you, cleanse you, renew you, overwhelm you, sprinkle you. Peace. Go in peace.